Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. We are on a series about prayer, and we're using the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6 as a template for that and uh, to develop our prayer life, to deepen a heart of prayer for God, and that means there's homework. And part of that homework then is we are asking you to try and set aside 20 minutes a day as we go through the Lord's Prayer bit by bit to set aside 20 minutes a day of every week um, just focusing on that one line of prayer that we happen to be going through that week. So the first week was aligning our perspective, our Father in heaven. Hey, the second week is aligning our priorities towards praise, hallowed be thy name. And this week, it's your kingdom come. And uh, I just want to admit, 20 minutes a day is really hard, okay? I've, I've figured that out. Um, if you feel like a failure now because you haven't been able to be consistent in that, uh, don't worry. We're not grading you, but keep at it, you know, keep trying. It's amazing how easily we can um, make hours disappear into entertainment or just scouring the internet, but how hard it is just 20 minutes a day to be focused on one aspect of prayer. Uh, so let's go ahead as, before we go any further, and we're going to pray the prayer together from Matthew 6. I've got the NIV, but you can... Pray however you may have memorized this prayer in the past. And we are going to go ahead and pray that yours is the kingdom and the power at the end. It may not be on the screen, I'm not sure. But Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Are you ready? Hey, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, your kingdom come. What does that mean? What are we praying for when we pray your kingdom Come. And first of all, what I want to speak to is what it isn't, what it doesn't mean, okay? When we pray your kingdom come, we're not talking about a place you go after you die, okay? Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven more than any other topic. And when he did, his message of good news was not good news. There is a heavenly kingdom, and if you repent and believe in me, then someday when you die, your soul can go there and live happily ever after for eternity. Jesus never said that. No, we're praying your kingdom come. Okay, in this context, it's meaning we're praying for something to be brought to bear on the here and now, on earth as in heaven. Okay, rather, it's God's kingdom, it's his reign, his culture, his values breaking into our world and overthrowing the powers, the principalities, the things that define the kingdoms of this world. Okay? That's what we're praying for. And Jesus frequently said, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. It's in your midst. 
Because I'm the king, essentially. You know, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll, I'll build a kingdom of people and you'll get on board with my kingdom. Okay, so, so what it isn't is, is not just a place we go when we die. It's something that's being brought to bear on the here and now. So what it is, the theme of the kingdom can really be traced back to the very beginning of the Bible. Okay? In fact, the, the command to keep the Sabbath day in the Ten Commandments is really a command to take a day and cease from all labor in order to experience in time a day of God's eternal kingdom rule. Okay? So if that's confusing, we'll, we'll expound on that. Why? Because if you set your hope and your longing on what is to come, it will release you from the tyranny of the now and from the kingdoms of this world. And it's a lot easier to hope in something in the future that's coming when in practice you've already been tasting it on a weekly basis. Okay, you already have a taste for his kingdom because you've been doing it every week. Um, in fact, as I said last week, I believe there's a parallel between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So we start off with, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an image and bow down to it. And then the, ten, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father in heaven. It's a response, right? The second one, uh, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. The Lord's Prayer says, hallowed be your name. And now... What's the next commandment? Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Your kingdom come. Okay? So, so I believe there is an intentional parallel here between those two ideas. So what does that mean? Essentially, and this is kind of a phrase I've come up with. It's probably not painting the complete picture, but I think it gives a good picture. It is to rest in God's rule resulting in release. Okay, it is rest in God's rule resulting in release. At the end of the seven days of creation, God rested on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. That is, he settled in to his creation as its rightful ruler. Once he had conquered the formless chaos and brought order to it, and also the lifeless void and filled it with life. Okay, so Sabbath rest is to remember by experiencing God's rule in the world. Okay, part of the Sabbath command is to then release yourself, your family members, your servants, your foreigners, even the animals that, you know, plow animals or whatever, from all labor, all work. And then every seven years, the land would have a Sabbath. The land would go fallow for a year. And then every seven times seven years, there's this ultimate release, okay? It's the ultimate year of Jubilee. They don't even really know if they actually did this because it would be really hard to do it. Um, but the idea was is every 50 years, there's this ultimate year of rest where all debts are canceled, okay? Imagine that. All servants or slaves are set free, okay? That's a, that's a big deal. All land that has been bought or borrowed or sold is restored to its original family ownership and heritage. Okay, so it's this whole kingdom reset release going on. And this is the year of Jubilee because the idea is 
to create a paradigm or an experience of a reminder of what it will be like when God returns as king. Romans 8, 20 through 22 says that the whole creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, released from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So part of establishing that future in restoring is, is then going to be restoring human beings as God's rulers, as God's priestly representatives who exercise dominion over the world and rule it rightly. Okay, that's the coming kingdom. We read Exodus 19 last week. You will be my most treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to God. A kingdom of priests. A priest is a representative of God to the world. Okay, So Daniel 7, 27 is all about the kingdom of God. And in this chapter, Daniel has a vision. And in that vision, he sees all the beastly kings of the world exercising their rule with violence and trampling the people of God and so on and devouring one another. And then they are subdued. And then the Son of Man ascends into the heavens and takes his seat next to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And then it says that the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Because that's what we're praying for when we pray your kingdom come. Jesus shows up and the way he announces his ministry is on a Sabbath day. He goes into the synagogue and he reads a scroll from Isaiah 63 that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressors free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. Okay, so Jesus is saying the paradigm points to me and I'm here. Okay, the, the, the release of the captives, the oppressed, the blind, everything, it has come, okay? The, the rest and rule and release of God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, a couple of interesting points here. The words release and forgiveness are the same word in the Greek, okay? They're the same word. To forgive someone is to release someone, right? So for instance, when a man who is a paraplegic is lowered by his friends through a roof of a house where Jesus is teaching underneath because they can't get to him because all the people, Jesus looks up, he sees his friends, he looks down, he sees this guy here, and he, he sees the faith of his friends, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone goes, who does this guy think he is that he can actually forgive sins? Only God can do that. And then he kind of discerns their thoughts and he says, well, which is more difficult for me to say your sins are forgiven or uh, to get up and walk? He says, but so that you know that the Son of Man 
has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take your mat and get up and walk. And the man does it. Now, what did he do? Forgiveness, we think of these as two different things. To heal someone's physical ailments and to forgive their sins. Okay? In the, the language, they're very much coming from the same thing. It's all a release. Okay? He's releasing the man from bondage to sin, forgiving his sins, releasing sin. Okay? And he's releasing the man, forgiving the man from the effects of sin in a broken, fallen world, which is that physical infirmity, that ailment that he's curing. So they're both a release. Okay? The point is, the kingdom of God is neither strictly a spiritual movement, nor is it strictly a social movement, a social gospel movement or something like that. It's not just... Um, you know, feeding the poor, clothing the, the naked, you know, the, um, all that good stuff. And it's not just telling people about Jesus so they can go to heaven. It's both, okay? They're both a release. That's why in Matthew 4, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people, okay? He's releasing everyone, to be a part of his kingdom. To take it a step further, there's an author named Peter J. Lightheart who made a comment in something that he wrote that I found very interesting. And so you got to track with me a little further on this. Remember I, um, Exodus 19, you shall be for me a kingdom of priests, right? When Jesus is healing people, oftentimes what the authors point out is the nature of the illness or the infirmity that Jesus heals. And oftentimes what you find is that those particular things that he heals are listed in the book of Leviticus as disqualifying a person either from being a part of a worshiping community, community as in the case of leprosy, or in most cases, disqualifying a person from being able to serve as a priest. Okay? So what's Jesus doing? He is building a kingdom of priests by healing the brokenness that disqualifies a person from being able to represent God fully as a priest. He's building a kingdom of priests by healing them physically. Because in the Old Testament, the idea was you serve a whole God, a holy God, who in every way is whole. And so if you are going to represent him, you have to have some measure of ritual wholeness or cleanliness. So there are certain sicknesses, illnesses, bleeding, sexual activity, things that would disqualify you from being able to do that. Not because you're a bad person, if that's what you are, but because it doesn't represent a whole God, okay? The, the perfect picture of God. So the idea is that when Jesus comes along and he heals people of physical and spiritual brokenness, that person becomes a testimony of who God is as a priest, and what it is to rest in his rule and experience his release, okay? So that's, I thought that was interesting. I hope you tracked with me on that. Um, so that's kind of the essence of it. But when we pray, your kingdom come, what do we mean then? There's a declaration that we're praying. We're also, I believe, praying a rebellion, and we're praying a longing. So if you were taking notes, you can write those things down. It's a declaration, it's a rebellion, and it's a longing or a hope. 
Okay, It's a declaration because the kingdom has come. It's a rebellion because the kingdom is now coming, is now advancing against the, the powers behind the counter kingdoms, okay, the worldly kingdoms. And it's a longing because it has not ultimately come and will not ultimately come in its full completion until Christ returns. Okay, so the declaration, the kingdom has come. Jesus came announcing the kingdom. So what kind of kingdom is it? Who is it for? How does one enter? It's kind of hard to relate to this idea because we don't speak in terms of kingdoms today. And even when you get a new president, like we don't have a lot of cultural shift. There's some, but because we're defined by a constitution, Cultural change happens more slowly. But imagine, you know, if you have a coach who has a certain coaching style, and that coaching style is like very rigid and like, you know, you'll never measure up, you're nothing, you know, come on, run faster, work harder, and he drills them all the time. And then that coach leaves or is ousted and there's a new coach. Well, he's going to bring a whole new culture to the team, right? There's a whole new way of thinking and what is valued, especially if it's a coach who is more about, you know, positive encouragement and building people up to, you know, rise up to the bar and so on. And so with Jesus comes a new set of values. And in Luke chapter 6, actually Matthew as well, before the Lord's Prayer, but in Luke it's a little more straightforward, so I'm going to read in Luke, but you see a contrast of values between the world's kingdoms and the kingdom of Jesus. So let's read this, Luke 6, 20 through 26. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets." And it's easy to read this passage and go like, whoa, so, so like laughing is bad in God's kingdom or you're supposed to be poor and like only, you know, really sad people are allowed. Um, that's obviously, hopefully you, you don't get that picture. This is not the picture that he's painting. It's a contrasting of the value systems, two different kingdoms and their value systems. And keep in mind, you are a citizen of one or the other. And even though we may be a citizen of God's kingdom, sometimes we may think or act like a citizen of a different kingdom. So one kingdom values, what does he list? He lists riches or comfort, appetites, lusts of the flesh, you might call it, laughter. But the word here for laughter comes from a root that refers to gloating kind of laughter. Okay, it's a Ha <laughs> ha, you know, laughter. It's like, I won, sucks to be you, you know. <laughs> it's like, I'm on top, you're on bottom kind of laughter, okay? And recognition and celebrity. These are the things that the kingdoms of our world prize and celebrate and strive for, okay? 
And then these are the kings, these are the things in Jesus' kingdom that are valued. The poor, it says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Those who hunger, those who weep, those who are scorned and rejected. And so it's a total reversal of values. The things the world finds pitiable, we prize. And the things the world values, we suspect. But as many authors have said, it's not masochism. Okay, the idea is not that you go seeking to become poor or crying all the time or anything like that, but the idea is that when it comes, you see the value in it. It's not to be rejected outright or avoided. And and also what that means is that when you see people in that state, you see their value as well. Whereas a kingdom built on Nietzsche or Hitler or survival of the fittest is going to say, it's the virtuous who survive and thrive and are, and are excelling that are the ones to be celebrated. Those who have disabilities, those who can't make it, those who weep now or hunger should be sloughed off and left behind. Okay, So we need to think about the messages we're hearing in culture because if you really play out what Disney often tells you, that's where it goes. Okay, what do you really value? It's only those who can actually accomplish all their dreams. Okay, it's only those who are the strongest. What about those who are weeping? What about those who are hungry? What about those, uh, you know, too bad. So why does God's kingdom find value there? And I want to make note also, the word woe, woe to you, is not a word of like, shame on you. It's a word, according to my dictionary, of of denouncing misery and pitying it. So it's like, so sad for you, alas for you, bummer for you, this is terrible for you, okay? If there's nothing more to this life, then the values of the earthly kingdoms make total sense because they get results. But if there's more than this life, then what Jesus is saying is that those kingdoms have a shelf life. They're crumbling, they're deteriorating, and so if that's what you build your identity on and your loves on, then when they deteriorate, so will you. Okay, you have a full stomach now, but you will hunger eternally. You have laughter now, but you will, you will weep forever. Okay, you will, you will grieve forever. In Jesus' kingdom, the point is we're no longer controlled by wealth, by money, by power, by comfort, by success, by our appetites, and so, long, and so much. You can take them or leave them. You aren't controlled by them. Blessed are you who weep now. You're weeping, but you're also blessed. There's a kind of blessing that exists in the midst of weeping. We said that the essence of the kingdom is rest in his rule resulting in release. Release from what? The tyranny of riches and having to live for comfort because he offers true stability and comfort and I am a co-heir of his inheritance. Release from slavery to my appetites because we're satisfied in him and looking forward to an ultimate feast. Release from the insecurity of pride and gloating or needing to be a celebrity because I have a standing now as a co-ruler in the kingdom of priests who will reign on the earth. Therefore, to rest in Christ's rule also means 
release from fear. Okay? The fear of being poor, because in him I'm rich, therefore I can become a giver. I'm released from fear of hunger, because in him I find satisfaction, so I can share my food with others. The fear of humiliation or weeping, my pride is bankrupt, and so I can coexist with the people I might have gloated over. The fear of rejection, of losing the approval of others because I'm famous with God. And so I can share in his approval with others. But he doesn't just come as an example. It's not just do what I do and try hard to do likewise. You know, how do you live like this? You live like this because what Jesus did for us, he modeled all of this in order to trade his fortunes for our depravity. Jesus, who owns it all, became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus, through whom every freshwater mountain stream was created, hung on a cross and cried out, I thirst, so that you could be satisfied. Jesus took the cosmic weeping so that you can laugh. Jesus was scorned and rejected so that you can be accepted. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, the rulers of the earthly kingdoms, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, what does that mean? It means that on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of the worldly kingdoms and their values and showed them for their emptiness. He exposed the fragility of our comfort, the slavery of our appetites, the emptiness of our gloating, and the absolute absurdity of our idea of fame and celebrity. He exposed them in order to offer you and I something much better than that. Why pray for his kingdom? Because we need to remember and declare our hope. Without it, the world's values make total sense. But with it, we find something much better. A greater city that has foundations, to quote Hebrews 11. So how do we enter into the kingdom? Do we then enter by becoming poor and sad and hungry and so on? Well, not necessarily. Matthew said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a parallel set of passages, and he says poor in spirit. You see, it's easy to convince a poor or hungry person that they have needs. It's easy to convince someone in that state that they're not in control of their life, unless they're in total denial. It's a lot harder when you've built confidence on your own merit, religious performance, work performance, social class, political party, whatever you've got. Tim Keller spoke of it in terms of a contrast of the poor in spirit versus the middle class in spirit. Okay. One way of looking at God is I truly have nothing of value. I might be the richest person on earth. I may have accomplished a lot, but God owes me nothing. He would be just to just cut me off. But I rely on Christ and his grace. I rest in that 
And therefore, I'm freed from my slavery to all the things that have made me what I am. It's to be poor in spirit. Or to be middle class in spirit. I've done pretty good. I haven't killed anyone. God owes me. He owes me comfort, success. He shouldn't let bad things happen to me. That's to be middle class in spirit. The test is, maybe, do you only hang out with people of your caliber? Or do you recognize that you are what you are by God's grace alone? And that it's God who ultimately defines our value and worth and therefore the same worth to anyone else. John 3, Jesus is talking to a very religious man named Nicodemus who just couldn't seem to get this concept. And he said, very, very truly, I tell you, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There has to be a spiritual rebirth. Why? Because there has to be a death to the life that has been built on the value systems of the counter kingdoms, of the earthly kingdoms. There has to be a death to a life that roots its value in riches and appetites in renown and celebrity and fame and so on. That person has to die and be reborn by the Spirit of God into a whole new kingdom. Acts 8, 12. But when Philip, excuse me, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Baptism is a picture of dying to that old life and being raised in God's kingdom as a whole new person defined by his values. Colossians 3, 1, 13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he has rescued us. He has brought us, if you're in Christ. When you pray, your kingdom come, one of your things you're doing is you're declaring something. He has done this. Christ has come. The kingdom has arrived. But the second part, and I'll make these ones shorter, it's also a rebellion because it's still advancing. The kingdom is now coming. In other words, if you're going to pray, your kingdom come, that means you're also praying, my kingdom go. Okay? If your kingdom come, then it's we're praying against other power structures that define the world and its kingdoms, okay? It's to despair of the world and its kingdoms. You can't cry thy kingdom come while promoting our own kingdom. Sin is an expression of disloyalty to the king, Eric Raymond writes. It, it is a trading of crowns. It salutes the flag of self over the flag of Christ. Therefore, the cry of loyalty is also a cry of repentance, we want the kingdom to come in the world around us and also in us. Contrast these two verses with me here. There's a battle. There's a turf war going on. In Luke 4, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant, some kind of vision, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to, them, to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
Fast forward, Matthew 24, Jesus says to his disciples, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so there's, there's two people here. There's two entities who think they have authority over the nations. All right, there's, there's a turf war going on. Jesus says in Matthew 28, after he's been raised and resurrected, he shows up and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I didn't have to go bow down at Satan's feet in order to get his kingdoms. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What is that? That's to go to battle against their kingdoms, right? Not physically, but that's to go to battle spiritually, subduing the power of those kingdoms in all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is teaching his followers to pray for the overthrow of the kingdom of this world, the coup of its leader, and the establishment of a new king. This is a cry of dissatisfaction. It wants a chance, Eric Raymond wrote. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So we're not praying necessarily for a physical takeover of the world's kingdoms. There are people who believe that. I don't believe that. I believe it's a topping, toppling of the spiritual power systems underneath them. However... i got to find my place here. Oh, as uh, Peter Lightheart wrote this quote, he says, Worship is political science 101. Every worship service is a challenge to Caesar because every Lord's Day, every Sunday, we bow to a man on the throne of heaven to whom even great Caesar must bow. O'Donovan claims that all political order rests on a people's homage to authority, which is to say, on an act of worship. Every Sunday, the church is reconstituted as a polity whose obedience is owed to Christ, and we are taught to name Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that means when it comes down to it, we say to our worldly leaders, no Caesar, you are ultimately not king, and even you must bow. And we take whatever comes because of it. Whatever that looks like. I don't have a political agenda here, I promise. Those things are way more complicated, and I'm not going to go there. But that is the call of your kingdom come. It's also a longing. It's the third part. The kingdom will come. The ultimate fulfillment is yet to happen, and we will not bring that about by our own efforts, but it will be complete at the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 says, Then the end will come when he, stand, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. When we pray, your kingdom come, 
We're looking at the despair of the world around us. We're looking at the despair of how we've rooted our own lives into empty value systems and where they've really taken us, their emptiness, as it's displayed on the cross. And we're longing for a day. We're looking forward to a day when God comes and we can rest in his rule once again and be released from those things. It's described as an ultimate wedding day. Um, again, Peter J. Lightheart, there's a whole bunch of quotes I read, and so I just had to kind of grab them. But uh, he says, I believe we find imaginative satisfaction in stories that end with weddings. Because we live in a world that will end in a wedding. The Bible tells a story of history, a story that is mysteriously built into the structure of our minds and our practices so that even those writers who write those stories that end in weddings, even if they don't believe that story, they can't resist, they can't help but leave traces of that story, faint and distorted as they may be on every page. In the book of John, John starts off Jesus' ministry with a wedding. A miracle at Cana that restores the festivities and the celebration. Because it's a sign. It's a sign of Jesus' ultimate wedding. God and his bride. When we pray, your kingdom come. We get to lift our eyes from the mundane and the stress and the day-to-day. And we look up on the horizon and we see a fleet of ships barely visible on the horizon approaching. And we say, yes, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that's how the Bible ends. Come Lord Jesus, come. In conclusion, when we pray your kingdom come, the essence of what we are doing is resting in God's rule now, resulting in release And we're joining in the longing for that reality to flood the earth. And the content of that prayer, therefore, when I pray, your kingdom come, I'm making a declaration, a rebellion, and a hope, a longing. A declaration that his kingdom has come. It is inaugurated in Jesus. And though things may look really bad right now, ultimately it looked pretty bad on the cross too. And that's how he won. So I can have hope. The kingdom is here. It's a rebellion. I am called to resist Satan's kingdom and to not root myself in its values and to see value in the things I wouldn't otherwise prize and the people I wouldn't otherwise prize and to become one who is an agent of God's release and rest, physically and spiritually. And three... It's a longing. The kingdom will come. That ultimate completion, that ultimate rest and Sabbath, that jubilee will happen when he returns. And we hope in that and we pray for it. So do you believe that the kingdom has broken into our world and is challenging its rulers? Do you believe that? Two, do you see evidence of God's kingdom taking effect in your own life and in the lives of people around you by the tension that you feel with your own values and the values that it creates in you? And three, do you hope, do you have hope for a future fulfillment? And does that hope shape your life now? Can you lift your eyes up 
from the here and now and see the fleet of ships on the horizon and take courage from that to be steadfast and keep going, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, because you know that in, your, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take some emblems, bread, and a cup of juice representing Jesus' body and blood. This is the cost. This is what he paid to purchase for you a kingdom of priests. This sacrifice, in doing this, God lowered himself and identified with the values that we despise in order to shame and scorn the things that we're trying to scorn him. He scorned the cross's shame, Hebrews 12 says. He put on display the emptiness of our longing for riches, our hunger and our appetites, our gloating, and our craving for fame and celebrity. He showed how empty they are. And so, as we take these emblems, let it be a declaration not only of our hope, but also the emptiness of those things. And let's pray, your kingdom come. Let our world be defined by resting in his sacrifice, resting in his rule, and experiencing his release. Let that happen in and through us. Let's pray together. In fact, let's, let's pray it again, the, the Lord's Prayer, together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We hope to see you soon.